in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, uh, this is a really intriguing event as, as Paul is kind of sharing a testimony really. He's talking about something that had happened in his life and how he responded to that and how God responded to that. And I want to kind of unpack that for you today. So he says, uh, uh, in the earlier chapters, he talked about amazing revelation that he had had, that uh, he had experienced something uh, special, uh, which is difficult to understand. He kind of got caught up in the third heaven, and uh, he saw mysteries and things, uh, revelations of God that he wasn't able really to speak about, but he understood some things and saw some things. God shared some things with him there. We don't know when that happened. It could be that it happened one time when he was persecuted and he was stoned and it looked like he had died and his body was lifeless for a while and then he come back and went, went with his uh, fellow uh, uh, followers and continued to preach the gospel. It could have happened at that point that he had this amazing experience of revelation. And then we get to verse 7 after he describes some of the things that happened there and he said, so, because I had these things happen to me, so to keep me from being conceited, which means he recognized a, a particular issue in his own life by which he could have become conceited and arrogant. Unlike anyone else in this room, Paul, because I know all of you have surpassed that one, but Paul said, I, I, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations a thorn was given me in the flesh. Now, that sounds fairly unpleasant. A messenger of Satan to harass me for this purpose, to keep me from being becoming conceited. And three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. Now, understand when he's praying and saying, three times I prayed about this, it was before he understood why this was happening, before he understood verse 7, actually that, hey, this was helpful to me to keep him from being conceited. Before he, he said, I'm pleading with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And, but he, that is the Lord, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness. This is an amazing statement to make. Uh, we would probably leave Paul at this point. I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. How many of you want to say, hey, I'd like to have some of that? Weakness, insults, persecutions. Bring on some calamities as well. This is wonderful. It'll help me be content if I have a bunch of that stuff. Those things are the things that make you discontented generally. And so it's amazing. I'm content. And he says, why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now that's an enigma, isn't it? So it's an interesting uh, testimony he gives there. And so I, hopefully I can unpack a little bit of that. I can't explain all the mystery of it for sure because I don't know, but... It is an amazing testimony. He says it was because of the revelations that God gave him. It's not like he went out and researched and learned things that other people didn't know and, and found revelation on his own. But this was given to him by God. It was a gift of God. And because of the revelation we have the, that came to him, we have the rest of these verses. Paul had just told the Corinthians about these amazing experiences of being caught up into the uh, third heaven, and hearing amazing things and seeing some really amazing things. And he understood mysteries that other people never really understood. He had actually some information. He had some understanding that others uh, didn't, mysteries that had been hidden from the ages. You know, I, have you ever had a conversation with someone and actually you were well-versed in the topic that they were talking about and they were, they were talking like they really knew what they were talking about, but the fact is they didn't really know what they were talking about. And you're sitting there with all this you know. You already know, right? It's like, wow. It's pretty hard not to like 
mm, annihilate them. I have a friend. <laughs> I have a friend who has a, a PhD. Uh, he's a nuclear physicist, and he was a professor at university, and we've been friends for quite a while. And uh, I don't actually speak too much to him about nuclear physics. <laughs> but surprisingly, I think I know some other things pretty well. So sometimes we're engaged in conversations. And what I have found out on most occasions is that actually, whatever topic I pick, he seems to know more about that topic than I do as well. So it's a little, little harder. One of the things I do know a little bit more about actually is about the scripture and about the church and, and he'll listen to me on that quite a bit but I, I can't imagine what he must think whenever someone like me is talking to him about a particular situation in the world or a political situation only to discover he actually knows more about that than I do after the fact and but he doesn't annihilate me but he does demonstrate superior knowledge for sure <laughs> he's unable to keep that to himself well, Paul understood lots of things. He understood the mystery of why Jesus had come. He understood that God is going to consolidate all things under the authority of Jesus Christ. He also understood that God was creating a family on the earth, a community that would expand across the globe called the church. And that in this church, it would be a unique community unlike any other. Now, to you, this may be common knowledge, but then it wasn't common knowledge. He understood that this church community would be comprised of all kinds of people groups. There would be in this group no division that humanity normally creates whenever we begin to talk about people. There would be no racial barriers. There would be even no gender barriers. There would be certainly uh, no real cultural uh, barriers. He said in this church community, there actually there's neither Jew nor Gentile, people from other nations, that in God, in this community, we're all treated and loved equally. It's a place unlike what's going on and we witness in the world, tribal warfares and hatred of one another and prejudice and those kinds of divisions. It's in the church community that God's creating uniquely. It doesn't exist. It's not supposed to exist. That there's Equality and equal love for each other and care for each other, regardless of what country you're from or regardless of your race or regardless of your social economic standing. He understood that. And one of the things he faced all the time was that uh, certain Judaizers trying to bring Gentiles under the bondage of their form of religious practice. He said, well, it doesn't exist. Jesus broke down all these. We had amazing revelation. And he said, because of the surpassing greatness of these understandings that he has, for this reason, I find it interesting, he, he, he puts it out that way. I had these revelations. They were given to me by God. I didn't really ask for them. He just did it for me. But for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given something to me. Well, what's going to help him to from becoming conceited or exalting himself. A thorn in the flesh. Now, a lot of Bible expositors have tried to explain what they thought that is, and you know what? They missed the point because that's really not the issue. The issue is God allowed something to keep him from becoming conceited. Some people said, well, I think he had bad eyesight. Maybe that was it. You know, he talked about how large a letter he wrote by his own hand where others had written them for them. Maybe he was practically blind. Listen, there's a lot of us like that. That's not exactly the issue. Or maybe it was uh, the Judaizers, which constantly plagued him. Some said, well, you know, these guys were following along. They're always persecuting Paul. They're always challenging uh, his gospel. Maybe it's them. Who cares what the thorn in the flesh was? That really, really is not the issue at all. It is this, that somehow this was given to him. And it was very unpleasant because he prayed at least three times for God to remove it. Isn't that how we pray when an unpleasant thing comes into our life? We want, we want it gone. We don't like unpleasant things in our lives. We don't like calamities and persecutions and conflicts and sickness. Or, so we say, God, 
This is not good. It's making me really uncomfortable. Just take it away, please. And so he prayed that way. Now, like many of us, when we pray that way, he received an answer that was different than the way he prayed. But at least I'm glad Paul prayed that way because it helps me to know when I've not prayed very well. This is another wonderful thing about God. Even when you pray a particularly bad prayer, which has to do with relief and comfort, you know, the absence of suffering or difficulty, when you pray even a really, really bad prayer, God doesn't just throw that prayer away. Oh, that's a bad prayer. Forget that one. He, he is able to take those prayers that are pretty unsanctified based upon our own comfort and give us the answer by adjusting them. Isn't that wonderful? I'm pretty glad about that because I would imagine most of the prayers that I've prayed would fall into the not very good prayer category because, frankly, I don't want to be sick. I want to be healthy. I don't want anyone angry at me. I want everyone to love me. I don't know why they wouldn't. <laughs> and I want to eat well and not put on weight. <laughs> I I don't know why I can't have a big bowl of ice cream every night. I love that stuff, but it just can't have that. Anyway, now the mystery about all of this, even with all the bad prayers and how God turned it to good and gave the right answer that he needed to have actually. Because we can, here's what we do. We actually put ourselves in the place of God when we pray a prescription to our issue. In other words, we're telling God, God, this is how you should answer my prayer, and this is how you should work on my behalf. And it's basically saying to God, hey, God, you got all the power, but let me make the decision on how this works out. And that's assuming a position that really belongs to God. God knows best for us, his kids, and will do well by us, his kids. And so oftentimes our prayers are very prescriptive, because they outline how we think God ought to respond to us, and that's what Paul was doing. I want this gone out of my life, which means I cannot see any positive benefit of this being in my life. He just couldn't see it. We know what that's like. Now, here's another mystery about this whole thing. How is it that God and the devil got together on this deal? Because we know they are not similar at all. And so here it says, I prayed to God and there was given to me a messenger of Satan, a thorn in the flesh to buffet me. Now, how did God and the devil get together on this? Does this mean that God and the devil are somehow sitting together and negotiating? And, uh, and God said, all right, devil, you can do this. Is this, this works that way? I don't think so. I don't really have the answer for you. But I do have one answer that hopefully will help you as it's helped me. It is this. I do know that whatever the devil intends for my life is intended for my destruction and for my pain. He has, he has no inclination for my benefit whatsoever. And whatever temptations he put in my path that promises me a better life has a trap door attached to it. And once I walk into the room of that temptation that promises me something better, that he springs the trap, he has nothing but bad intentions and for our own destruction. The scripture says he's a thief and he's a murderer and he wants to destroy us completely. I also know this, God has nothing but a good intention for my life and for yours. And, and he wants to bless you and give you eternal life. And he wants to bless you abundantly. I know that. They are polar opposites. Now, this is the way this seems to work. And it helps me a great deal. Whenever the enemy, the devil, 
attempts to work in my life or bring things into my life that are for my pain and destruction. God can only work one way, and I belong to him. As it comes to my life, there's only one way God can work, positively and redemptively and for my good. The Bible says this. We know, we ought to know this, that all things work together for the good of those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. All things, not just a couple of things. All things are under God's providential care as it relates to us, his kids. And it means anything that comes onto my life, God has divine intention of goodness for me, redemptive purpose. So, this is how I reconcile the, this event. Is that any time the devil works on my life for my destruction to bring something painful and difficult and awful and horrible and destructive, wants to steal my life from me, that God so powerfully works redemptively that he can actually take that evil intent and turn it toward a redemptive work in my life. You know what this means? I am invincible. And so are you. That means nothing by any means can possibly damage you. And whatever the enemy throws in your path and however he attempts to destroy you, God frustrates him by taking that very thing and working good out of it in my life. Only the creator of the universe could take something of evil intent and turn it to a positive, redemptive purpose in your life. You got it? You belong to Jesus? Nothing by any means can harm you. You have superhero status. You are invincible. I'd like for you to say that. I am invincible. All right, come on, a little more enthusiasm. I am invincible. Because <laughs> that means even harmful things can be turned to your good. That's pretty good news, isn't it? Not going to charge you extra for that. So, Adverse circumstances are within the realm of God's government. I think nothing that comes to me is outside of his providential dealings in my life. And the thorn in, in the flesh is not something that's against you, though it appears to be against you. But it is for you because it's all within God's providence. God gives us things, however, allows things that we would not normally choose because in the initial giving of them, they are quite unpleasant. I'll give you an example of that. And I think the Bible, you know, I, I put myself in the situations of a lot of these guys in the Bible, and I think it's kind of funny. It wouldn't be funny if it were happening to me, but it's funny knowing it happened to that guy. Abraham is 99 years old. And God comes to Abraham and he says, hey, I want to favor you. I'm going to bless you. And this is, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Well, when God makes a covenant with you, he does not pull back. He, he's good on his word. And I imagine Abraham is pretty excited about that. So I'm going to make a covenant with you. It's wonderful, me and you together. And, and this is the covenant you shall keep. And it's like all covenants, you know. Somehow it's got to be sealed or signed or something. There's a, there's a sign that says, okay, I agree. It's like, a, I agree to do this. Okay, and so then God says, and this is going to be my sign to you that I've made a covenant with you. And he's waiting for the good news. And God says, you shall be circumcised. <laughs> it's funny to you. It wasn't funny to him. <laughs> now, you can imagine, he probably didn't know what that was. Circumcision. Oh, great. What, what is it? Come a little closer. <laughs> well, sometimes the things God gives us can seem fairly detrimental and seem to be a hindrance, but we, we cannot even in the moment, in the moment, possibly see the benefit. 
I mean, I would imagine Abraham wanted to negotiate a different covenant agreement. <laughs> but Paul prayed. He wanted this thing gone. He prayed for its removal three times. And he's writing this after the fact so he knows now why. But at the time he didn't. And, he's, and that's why he's able to say there was given to me this thorn in the flesh to keep me from becoming conceited. He wrote these words after he understood God's divine purpose in his life that as painful as this, whatever this thorn in the flesh was, as painful as it was, it, was, it saved him from something worse, pride and conceit and arrogancy. It had a specific purpose. It was sent. It was given. It was appointed. It's part of God's appointment to keep him from something far more dangerous. By reason, because of the superior vision of revelation that he'd received. And now, God answers his prayer. His prayer was, I want this gone. The answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. The answer is, what you really need is my grace. What you want is relief. But what you really need is my grace. Now, I want to help you today understand something about grace because grace has always been seen as kind of like a getting saved word. Uh, God wants to forgive you of all your sins and, and so you don't deserve it. So it's his favor. And this is true. It's all true. And so he just forgives you of your sins and that's God's grace. And it's not anything you did to deserve it, but he just did it for you. That's God's grace. But you know, Grace has a much larger meaning than just a getting saved word, taking your sins away. And so when he says, my grace is sufficient for you, he's talking to them, a guy who's already saved. He's talking to Paul who's already a believer. So why does he need grace? Grace is the power to live victoriously with content and at peace in any situation. It's the power of God to release that empowers you to live with contentment and in peace in any situation. It's not relief that Paul needs. That's what he thinks he needs, but it's grace. Can I just say that in this room, many of you are facing all kinds of issues, and you can't see any, any positive thing about what you're facing, whether it's economic or physical or any whatever, emotional. You can't see anything positive in it all. And if you were to pray, most of you probably have prayed about those things in your life, and your prayer would be, take it away, please. <coughs> Relief. I want this gone. But actually, what we really need is to experience the release of his grace. Grace is the operative power of God. It's, it's his power. It's his force. It's, it's divine strength. When given to us, it makes anything possible and everything possible. It's grace is, is, is God's divine power on your behalf for your good, for your benefit. It's an act of God, self-motivated love for you. It is uh, his pure love flowing from his throne to you in a sovereign act of his gracious giving. It's his amazing gift to you. It is, it is, and, and it does, it's not indiscriminate. It's directed power. For instance, uh, it's, it's not like a shotgun blast. It's like a rifle bullet with, with, with a scope and crosshairs. It's, it's directed very uh, accurately to the exact point of your particular need. There is something that's kind of like blanket grace that God gives to the whole world. That's why this sun rises every day. That's God's grace. That's why people breathe. Even the air that you breathe is a gift of that. That's, that's general universal grace. But what Paul's talking about here is the specific grace for his kids at their specific issue that they face where God grants to you specifically power to live as you ought 
to live. Now, this is an amazing proposition, and we know about this, but for instance, in, it's, it's throughout the New Testament, this whole idea of grace and God's power. In, in Acts chapter 6 and verse 8, the Bible says, Stephen was a man who was full of grace and power, and he did many signs and wonders. Well, how was he able to do signs and wonders? Because we just none of us can just do that. Well, God gave his grace specifically to do signs and wonders for the benefit of people that he'd come in contact with. Now, grace is just radical. It's absolutely radical nature that is evidenced throughout the Bible. We see grace as being radical. It's outrageous, in fact. I'll tell you why. Because grace is unearned. It's solely God's initiation, and no one deserves it. No one's earned it, and there's nothing you could do that could earn God's grace. And what this means is, is it goes directly against the way we're wired. For instance, if someone does a gracious thing for you, how do you automatically think about that? You think, I need to do something for them. There's something in us that, that wants to earn. There's something in us that feels payback is necessary. If God's done something for me, I need to do something for him. I don't even remember the movie, but I just remember this one instance in the film. And hopefully, it wasn't a bad film, and you remember it. <laughs> but but there, was a, there was a guy who was out to sea and looked like he was going to drown. And he's trying to swim in, and he's negotiating with God as he's trying to, trying to get into shore. And he's saying, God, oh God, I'll give you 75% of everything I make. And he got closer to shore. He said, 50%, 50%. And then he got closer, and he says, 30%. And then he got closer, 5%. And then he quit negotiating when his feet hit the sand. There's something about us that... It feels like, well, if God does something for us in dire circumstances, then I'll do this. You know, if you'll help me with that, then I'll do this. But just to receive God's abundance and gracious supply without payback, it's just, it's difficult for us to understand. And that's why uh, religions uh, require something from people. It may be, I have to do missionary work for a year. Or I have to knock on doors and distribute little pamphlets or booklets. You know, you've got those guys coming to the door, you know. And uh, here's a magazine and here's... Because there's a sense by which I have to earn my station. And I have to buy behaving in a certain way. And it also happens in Christian churches where there's a lot of law or legalism that is to somehow be in this group and be accepted, there are certain things that you need to do. You need to do this, you need to do that. And it, and it appeals to the pride and arrogancy of people by which somehow I've earned my way in. I mean, it's very humbling to bring nothing and be a recipient of so much, isn't it? And so it it's creeps its way into religion. But this is why grace is so radical and it's so outrageous, and it's so revolutionary. I mean, how, there's examples of it in the scripture. For instance, do you remember when Jesus was crucified and there were two thieves, and one thief was reviling him, and the other thief said, you know, uh, we're being executed here because we deserve it. We knew the penalty of the law, and we did all these criminal activities, and we're, but this guy, he's innocent. And Jesus turns to him and says, this day, you will be with me in paradise. This guy's guilty. He's a criminal. And in an instant, God's grace comes to him and says, you're saved. Your sins are forgiven. Today you're going to be with me in paradise. Now that's radical. It's like, what? This guy's a criminal. Think how many people he's ripped off. And he's forgiven in an instant there. Or there's another story in Scripture about um, a guy who owed lots of money. And in today's dollars, it's hard to calculate, but it would be close to a billion dollars. It's a story which is so outrageous that could anyone be in debt that much? And he came to the guy he was in debt to, 
and he pleaded for time. He says, if you give me time, I can pay you back. And the reason the amount that he owed is so ludicrous is because there's no way that a man in a lifetime or multiple lifetimes could ever pay back what this man owed. And the guy he owed the money to forgave him and absolved him of his debt and required no payment whatsoever. That's outrageous. It's outrageous. He owed it. He just forgave him. And then you have the story, I think Dylan mentioned it last week, of the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery and the law at that time said that a woman caught in the act of adultery would be executed, stoned. And remember, they brought her to Jesus. They were trying to trick him. And he was riding on the ground rather nonchalantly. And then he looked up and said, well, okay, anyone here who doesn't have any sin, you can throw the first stone. Mm. And they one by one faded away. And then he said to the lady, he said, where are your accusers? She said, they've left. And he makes this outrageous statement to her. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now that's grace. He's not come to condemn, which does not, is not the same as condoning. He said, I don't condemn you. Instead, this is what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you the power of God's grace to not have to sin anymore. Go and sin no more. Because God never requires anything of us that he doesn't give us the power to do it. That's outrageous. I know. And guess what? You are the privileged people that are recipients of God's outrageous gift of grace. Whew. Makes you want to go crazy and say hallelujah and hop around, but I won't make it. God's, <laughs> it'll be kind of fun. Shall we just, no. <laughs> but just to know God's grace is not simply a wink and a nod, like somehow it doesn't matter to him, because God is totally holy and he's totally righteous. And, and sin has to be paid for, and God's righteousness and holiness has to be satisfied. And that's why Jesus came. We were singing about it this morning. Jesus came. And this is what he said he would do. We're all guilty of sin. Everyone in this room, we are. And Jesus said, I will pay the price of your sin. The wages of sin is death. And he was totally righteous and totally holy. And we think, well, he just bore our sins. No, 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 he just paid the price. He did much more than that. The Bible says he actually became our sin in that moment on the cross. Can you imagine what that would have been? I mean, it's indescribable. Most people, when they talk about the cross, they talk about the physical pain, crown of thorns, he got whipped, nails and all that stuff. That was a walk in the park. For a righteous God to become your sin totally. Think of any wicked, vile thought you've ever had or anything you've ever done. He became that. You think about the gross wickedness in this world. Right now, this ISIL terrorists in Iraq are beheading Christian children's heads. <laughs> Kidnapping women, hurting them off for very depraved uses. And Jesus took upon himself and became that. It is incomprehensible that he would do such a thing. But God's righteousness and holiness had to be satisfied. And Jesus did it on our behalf. And we know we've been forgiven much. And those who have been forgiven much will love much. And one of the evidences that you really understood God's grace and mercy is the absence of condemnation and criticism of others. If I've been a recipient of grace, how can I condemn you? And so people who've received grace give grace. So if you sin against me, if you cuss me out, if you steal from me, I'm not condoning what you do, but I'll tell you what. I've been a recipient of God's grace, and guess what? Those who understand that give grace. And if I've been a recipient of mercy, 
I'm going to be merciful to you. And one way that you understand that a, a true follower of Jesus has really understood what Jesus has done for them is he cannot but give the same treatment to others. Therefore, we are legally and fully justified by a holy God and Jesus has taken his own righteousness and given it to us and we are the righteousness of Christ. And that blows our minds. I'm a righteous dude. You're a righteous girl. You are a righteous man. Jesus did that for us. Isn't that wonderful? You're a saint. Not because of anything you've done, because of what he's done. We believe what the Bible teaches, that grace is more powerful to transform our lives than law could ever be. The law and the rules, all the law is good for is pointing out where we failed. And we don't want to depart from ever sharing this radical, revolutionary message of grace and there are people who say, well, if you do that, people will take it as a license to sin and they'll do all kinds of things. I say just the opposite. Law does not give us the power to be different, but our understanding of what Jesus has done for us and his grace motivates us to live righteously and the grace of God within us empowers us to live righteously. The Bible says grace teaches us to say no. Hey, here it comes. I can say no to it. You know why? Because I understand what he's done for me. <laughs> and he's given me the power to say no. Now, my grace, God says, my grace, my love, flowing to you in a sacrificial act of giving accomplishes the will of God in us. It's God's heart. And he delights this, is, this might sound like a strange statement, but did you know he delights in the presence of your own need? You know why? Because it enables him to demonstrate so powerfully his love for you. Because in the midst of your own need, he can bring health, he can bring healing, he can, he, he can bring peace, he, he can bring contentment, and he can empower you to live in the midst of those situations. Because our difficulty puts us in a place that pleases God. It's when we're in difficulty. I mean, that's why Paul said, hey, get this away from me. Three times he prayed. Because it takes us to God and we depend on him and God is able to do what's best for us. You see, if you don't have any needs, frankly, there's a tendency not to pray very much. If you don't have any real needs, there's a tendency to kind of forget God. But in the midst of, I've got a real need, it brings me to him. It brings a divine appointment, which enables me, therefore, to be a recipient of his grace. So it's a powerful thing. God's appointment for your life is an appointment of grace. Now, the interesting thing about grace is that grace is very focused. I said it's not shotgunny. It's like a, like a rifle. This is what I mean. Did you ever... Uh, you, Several years ago during the Iraq war, they showed the news program showed video of these cruise missiles. Now, they're amazing things because they have a camera in the nose of them and they are programmed for a particular target. And so here they are going into these things have been launched from the sea and they're going into the city of Baghdad. And I was fascinated when I watched this in, on the news programs. And here they are, they're going around buildings, you know, did you ever watch those things? Amazing. They're avoiding all sorts of things. And it's like they've been programmed for a particular target. And then they lock onto the target. It was, and here they go. You, you see the building coming up like that. And then you just see snow. God's grace is like that. It knows how to navigate around all sorts of It's directed. My grace for you. Whatever it is you need, boom. God, I need your grace. Boom. It comes directly to the point of your greatest need. It's wonderful. 
it has its directed force. It's directed God's liquid love, powerfully directed to the point of what your, is your greatest need. You thought your need was relief. You prayed that way. God knows you. He made you. And he comes to you maybe differently than the way you prayed and makes himself great on your behalf. That's the issue. And so your extremity is his opportunity. Grace is directed force. It's God's heart in action on your behalf. I was uh, thinking of this morning about Zerubbabel who was given the responsibility of building the temple and it wasn't going well. No one would show up to work. In fact, people said, we're not going to help you build this temple. We're going to go build our own houses instead. And he was a very discouraged leader because he recognized he did not have the ability to pull this off. And, and the prophet of the Lord, Zechariah, comes to him and he says, the Lord has a word for you, Zerubbabel, and it's a promise as well. But it says, you are going to finish this task, and you're going to put the top stone, the capstone on this temple. You're going to finish it. But this is how it's going to be done. First of all, it's not going to be done by might and power. So by your skills or your adequacy or your abilities to persuade or, or organizational. No, no, it's not going to be done by that. It's not going to be done by might or by power. It's not going to be done by willpower and discipline and determination. It won't be done that way. But it will be done by my spirit. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. With shoutings of grace, grace to it. God's grace. It will be done. And we know it was done. And it was finished. Now, what Paul receives as an answer is this. My grace is sufficient for you. Can we? I'd like to cut out just the middle section of that phrase. My grace for you. And I'd like for you to think about that. This way. God's grace it has a direction. What, where is it going? God's grace for me. God's, and let's say that. Can we? God's grace for me. Oh, I like that. Let's say it again. God's grace for me. One more time. God's grace for me. Now, we add the other two words. God's grace is. That word is is amazing. Because guess what? You don't need grace for yesterday because it's history, right? It's over. You don't need grace for tomorrow because it really doesn't exist yet. When do you need grace? Right now. And this is what it says. God's grace is. That word is is present right now. Is. It's right here, right now. Today, this very moment, whatever it is that you're facing, it is. It is. It is. It is. And what is it? Sufficient. Now, that's a bit of an understatement. Sufficient. Sufficient. For me. That's the answer that God came. And then he goes on to say that his power is made perfect in his weakness. The word perfect actually means complete or to make non-existent. It's kind of like a, a a pothole in the road, and they come along and they fill the pothole, and the pothole is no longer existent. It's just not there anymore. They filled it. God fills the potholes in your life. And so he says, this power, my power, is made perfect or completes or makes non-existent your weakness. Because the issue is not your weakness. The issue is his strength. You get it? After, and when we pray, we're praying about our weakness. We look at our weakness. We're thinking about it. I got a pothole. Oh, this pothole. I wish I didn't have this pothole. Could we do something about this pothole? The answer is not the pothole. The answer is the guy who fills it. And so if our focus is transformed from our weakness to his strength, we will find that our weakness is no longer existent. It's redundant. That's what God said. We've got to believe the Bible here. The issue is not weakness. The issue is God's power. The issue isn't, I can't do this. It's what God can do in me and through me. And the Father's strength delights to work in and through your weakness because guess who gets the glory? He does. And guess who doesn't fall into the trap of bragging or boasting? You. That's a marvelous thing. That's the way God works. And when we see our weakness, we see our need, 
of the Father's power, and we come to dependence, which is where we need to be. And we, we are not to let our weaknesses focus us on ourselves, but rather to focus our dependence on the Father and be recipients of his grace. God's strength loves our weakness because he demonstrates his love for us. It causes us to worship him and know that he has overcome our weakness and in spite of our weakness and through our weakness still accomplished his purpose. And Paul had therefore come to see his weakness in a new light. He made a very silly statement in a way. It sounds silly anyway. Most gladly, I will rejoice in my weakness. Now think about that. I'm weak. Hallelujah. I am weak. Thank you, Jesus. I am weak. I'm rejoicing in my weakness. Now, you would haul that guy off. Well, basically, that's what he's doing. Why would he rejoice in his weakness? Because his weakness is an opportunity for God's power to work in his life and demonstrate the goodness, love, and power of God. When you see your weakness, you actually become available for his grace and power. You see, grace doesn't work in certain environments. It has a particular environment it works in. Grace does not work in the environment of your independence and your supposed strength because there's no recognition of need there. Grace works in the environment of your need, your recognized need. God, I need you. That's the environment it works in. If you're unwilling to admit your need, then grace doesn't have the environment to work on. That's, that's the direction. His, so Paul became aware of his need for God's grace and power, and he became a recipient of God's grace and power. You see, the Bible talks about weaknesses in the scripture, and in, in, in case you're wondering, well, what, what, what is this weakness? Well, it's lots of things. Paul talks about how unimpressive his appearance was in 1 Corinthians 2, 3. He said, I, I was with you in weakness, fear, and trembling. Now, we know what that is. You ever walk into a room, weakness, fear? I, he, had, he had some emotional issues there. He, weakness, fear, and trembling. And then the Bible also talks about the weakness of flesh, which has to do with sin issues that many of us are dealing with here. Matthew 26, 41 talks about the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. We all know that, don't we? It's pretty easy to be lured away and to sin. And then Romans 6, 19 says, we have a natural inclination to present the members of our body as slaves to sin. But <laughs> now he's empowered us to present our bodily members as slaves to righteousness. Wow, that's power. And sickness, I mean, that's a weakness, sickness. John 5, 5 and in with for 38 years, Jesus said, you want to be well? Take up your bed and walk. Or in Acts 28, 9, where Paul's on this island, and a guy named uh, Publius, his father, was sick with dysentery, and Paul goes and heals him. It's a weakness. A woman bent over for 18 years in Luke 13, 11, and Jesus straightens her up, and she's healed. Weakness. Weakness, figuratively, however, also is this internal poverty or, or the sense of inadequacy or insignificance that wants to pervade our lives that holds us back from attempting anything. Or weakness could be economic. You got money issues. So Acts 20, 35 uh, is, says, hey, help the weak because it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so weakness can be any of these things. Economically, you feel disempowered. Physically, you feel disempowered. Emotionally, you feel disempowered. All of these things, inadequate, inner poverty, all of that stuff. And God comes to take care of that for us. Now, Paul says, I can boast and I'm content with my weakness. And by the grace of God, I am who I am. <laughs> I don't have to compare myself with anyone else who seems to be able to do things I'd like to do that I can't do and they're better than me and they can do this they can do, I can, no, no. By the grace of God, I'm content. He's made me the way I am. I am who I am. He come to grips with his weakness. I love that. We have deficiencies. They may not be taken away, but they do make us candidates for his grace. 
That's a powerful thing. I'm content. <laughs> I'm content. Are you content? I had to get to that place. For many years, I was not content. I wanted to be different. But I know I realized I was never going to be different. I was never going to be able to dunk a basketball unless I stood on Dylan's shoulders. Then it's questionable. <laughs> I'm never going to be six foot four and broad shouldered and narrow at the hip. I'm never going to walk into the room and light up a room. You ever notice people like that? They come in the room and go, hey. And then there are other people, they walk into the room and they're practically invisible. I'm never going to be certain things. I used to not like who I was and want to be different. I don't anymore. I'm a happy man. By the grace of God, I am who I am. I don't need to be anybody else. I don't need to try to be like anybody else. I'm not in competition with anybody else. I don't need to try to compare myself with anybody else. Now look, God wants to meet you today. In this room, there are lots of needs. And in this room, there are many of you that have prayed a lot about your deliverance or relief from certain things in your life. And you thought that you've known best how God should respond to you. And maybe the answer has not come in the way that you would like for it to come. Can you put that aside in light of what God is saying to us through the scripture here today? Bring your weakness to God. Bring your situation to him. And in prayer, rather than tell God all that you feel he needs to do, stop and listen. If Paul hadn't have listened, he would have never heard, my grace is sufficient for you. And most of the time we pray, we pray, we pray, we pray, sign off, thank you. No, no, wait there. Who knows what God may say to you? Can I tell you what I know God will say to you? He will say, my grace for you. Appropriate my grace for you. And you'll find it is presently in this day sufficient for you. You have economic weakness, physical weakness, maybe a lack of wisdom. How about emotional issues and various kinds of insecurities? Trying to make yourself accepted when you've already been accepted. How about the flesh? Propensity towards sinful practices. His grace delivers us from the power to have to need to practice sin and teaches us to say no. Inadequacy. Paul said he could even be content with insults, hardships, and calamities because God's grace was more powerful in his life. He learned how to be content in the midst of it all. But possible if you prayed for things that have been a hindrance, that have been a weakness. Well, God wants to meet you, so I want you to take out your communication card right now.